Hey everyone, welcome to The Freelancers Show. I'm Petra Manos and today we have panelists, Charles Maxwood. I'm back. And we have a special guest, Michael Fleischner. How are you going, Michael? Real good. Hey everybody. And Check today- that radio voice. Holy oh. cow. <laughs> Checks in the mail, Charles. <laughs> Leveling up is important. I spend at least an hour every day learning ways I can improve my business or take a break and listen to a good book. If you're looking to level up, I recommend you start out with the 12-week year as a system to plan out where you want to end up and how to get the results you want. You can get it free by going to audibletrial.com code. That's audibletrial.com code. Well, Michael's been podcasting for a while, so he's well-practiced at his radio voice. Heck yeah. Now, Michael, can you tell us, please, a little bit about yourself before we start today's topic? I can, and you're probably going to have to cut me off, Petra, because, you know, I tend to uh, go pretty deep on things, but, you know, at a real high level, I'm a marketing guy through and through. I spent about almost 20 years on the corporate side, and while I was doing that, I saw a lot of people... Uh, freelancing, and I thought I might want to try that. So I kind of transitioned from a full-time corporate job to a freelance lifestyle and ultimately my own agency. And, uh, you know, I've got plenty of stories to tell, so I'm happy to share those during today's podcast. But in essence, that's me. You know, I, I grew up on the business side and everything was really formal And I think being a freelancer had a lot of appeal, at least initially, because I thought I could travel the world and have a laptop lifestyle. Uh, Reality is actually a little different than that. So, um, you know, I kind of learned along the way. But, you know, today I have my own agency. We really focus on search engine optimization, which is where I started. Uh, But, you know, I've I've dabbled in a lot of different things. I, you know, uh, published a few books. I sold products on Amazon, so on and so forth. So, you know, it's probably a typical entrepreneurial story. And uh, you make I that know. sound so easy. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, as you right. do. <laughs> yeah. A lot of failures got me to where I am today. Absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I have a really, actually, can I dive into a quick story? Oh, go for do it. it. Okay. So I think, I think your listeners will really appreciate this. And you guys, for sure, will relate to this story. So I um, was on a webinar, and I'm dating myself. Probably, Charles, when you were diving into podcasting is when I was kind of into my whole publishing you know, lifestyle, if you will. Mm-hmm. And I had published a book, and I was doing some webinars. And at the end of this one particular webinar... I got an email from somebody by the name of Greg Caesar who said, hey, Mike, that was a great webinar. I wanted to buy something at the end, but you didn't have anything to offer except your book. He said, call me. And this is like at 11 o'clock, maybe midnight by the time the webinar was done and everything settled down. And I just went to bed. And in the middle of the night, I woke up and I said, Greg Caesar, I know that name. Where do I know that name from? So I went to Google, which at the time looked very different than it does today. And Greg Caesar was one of the first guys to make money online teaching other people how to advertise with Google AdWords. So Petra, I know we're right up your alley. So I did a little you know, investigation and I asked around and apparently this guy was kind of a big shot. 
And uh, I couldn't believe he reached out to me. So the next day I called him and he was really casual. He said, hey, Mike, how you doing? And he, you know, really just kind of jumped right in and said, you got to be selling something. You should be selling an SEO course. We're going to do a course together. It's going to be great, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, fast forward, maybe a month or two, we're actually working together. We're building the first online course that I ever worked on. And Greg says to me, he said, Mike, what's the most money you've ever made online? And to be honest with you guys, maybe I made a hundred bucks selling books, maybe $200 US. Like it wasn't a lot of money. I was really embarrassed when he asked me the question. So I answered, I said, oh, I've made $500 selling my books. And there was like this awkward silence. And you guys know what that's like, (laughs) right? And I was like, wait, was that too much? Was it too little? Like I'm questioning myself. And he says to me, and I'll never forget this. He says, well, why do you think that is? I was like, what do you mean? Why do I think? Like I couldn't really comprehend what he was asking or really what the purpose of the question was. And I really didn't have an answer for him. And he responded, he said, Mike, the reason you haven't made more money online is because you don't think you can. And I really took that to heart because over the next few weeks, months, and years, it really opened the door to digital marketing. And what some of these guys and ladies were doing online from Google ads to ultimately what we see today with, you know, selling on Amazon, online courses, it really opened up a whole new world to me that I hadn't seen before. And true story, uh, Greg and I went ahead, we did this course and remember what my answer was, right? It was $500. We launched a course called SEO the easy way, which had to be 12 years ago now. And the first night we made $24,000 in sales. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's fantastic. I love the name too. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, what's so funny to me is that moment changed my mindset about what was possible with regard to digital marketing and marketing online. And I use that on the corporate side. I obviously use that now with my own business, but it really changed my mindset about this thing we call digital marketing and being a freelancer and really what is possible. And, uh, you know, I was really fortunate to have that experience. I wish I made $24,000 every day. That's not real life. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it was a cool experience that I share because for a lot of people who are just trying to make it, right, maybe they're making money blogging or doing web design. Sometimes we get really stuck in our in our mindset and in the we get caught up in just doing it all day long and we don't really take a deep breath, take a step back and say what if? What if I could crack the code? What if I could create a funnel that really starts to produce better, more quality leads for me or for a client? What if I get that one big client who really values what it is I have to offer. So I love this idea of freelancing and really providing your focus and skill set around a particular uh, value proposition, because ultimately it can help you really expand your thinking. That's a cool story. And I agree so much that you, you need to expand your mindset of what it is that you're providing. Even if you're providing a service, I think it's 
and not that there's anything wrong with services, but being able to expand what you offer outside of that is really powerful. And even if you're not making money from it straight away, just the fact that you're sharing in a wider realm brings people in that you wouldn't have thought of or that, um, you know, provides opportunities for you that you wouldn't have even considered were out there. So I consider it's important that I always spend a portion of my week, not necessarily producing products for sale, but producing things that can scale outside of me, delivering a service. And then I know that people out there are benefiting from what I know and what I can do. So I'm not really selling a course for, you know, large dollars or anything, but the thing is the small products that I've created are being used out there and I'm getting feedback on those. And that's really important to me. So I always spend a portion of every week doing that. And yeah, I implore anyone who is working on a service to do the same because opportunities will come that you hadn't considered. How do you guys feel about for the freelancer who, let's say, has a specialty, and maybe that specialty is writing, maybe they're a great content developer, they blog for clients, do you feel that they should, what I call, double down on that service? Or do you think that they should position themselves as more of a generalist so that they could potentially grab other projects or other business? How do you guys feel about that? I know how I feel about it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I feel too. that Go specializing ahead. is really important because in, in my opinion, if someone is going to be reaching out to you, it's because they think that there's something special about you. If you come across as, and look, to be honest, if you do everything, you, you don't do everything really well. You cover a lot of topics but you're not going to go really deep. And there is so much content out there on the planet right now that is low quality. It's actually frustrating now. I've been saying for the last five, 10 years that we're going to have an overload of information and we're going to have trouble finding the quality information. We're all going to go back to books because like the internet is just going to be full of trash. So we're all going to go back to books. I strongly believe that being having people find you as a specialist requires you to be able to go deep. Mm -hmm. And so hands down, I say the specialist route. How about you, Chuck? I was going to say more or less the same thing. Uh, I think being in that niche, uh, knowing what value you bring, you know, just being out there and yeah, just focusing on that one area. I mean, a lot of times, though, people are looking for kind of that silver bullet, right? That one thing that's going to take them over the edge. I don't think niching down is that thing. But I think if you're niched down, then it becomes really easy to identify some of the other things that are going to work. So, for example, if you find somebody that understands deeply SEO or Facebook marketing or whatever, right? Then you, since you've niched down and you understand who your customer is, you can marry that up with their expertise and you can really knock it out of the park. I've noticed a few people that have broadened their base, right? Um, I see this a lot with like web developers, right? Where they've kind of niched down to React or you know, view or some other framework or something like that, right? And they don't seem to be able to find enough of the right people or, you know, they've even niched down further where it's, I do this particular thing within, you know, whatever. And uh, 
when they broaden out, it doesn't necessarily help them find people. And a lot of times it actually muddies the message up because the thing that they're really good at is now mixed in with all the other stuff that they're trying to attract people with. And so, yeah, by having that focus and having that niche, people know that you can do it, you can do it well, and that you're worth whatever they're going to pay to have you do it. I've actually seen it work well as you guys have described it, as well as an industry focus. So I've got a good friend, uh, Paul, who's an agency owner um, here in the States, and he does really, I'll call it identity work. So he's doing creative work, logos and style guides and you know website development around a specific theme. And about two years ago, he decided, because a good portion of his customer base was manufacturing. And he said, you know what? I'm going to go after manufacturing. That's in essence, Mm -hmm. the square that he's going to stand on. And it's really interesting what happened. And that is he found that it was much easier to market and promote his business because he became known as the guy who does this for manufacturing companies, which by the way, you know, aren't typically seen as sexy or interesting, right? You know, oftentimes, right, they're dated businesses. And uh, he's kind of bringing them into the 21st century. So I think in addition to kind of niching down on a specific service, let's call it, or area of expertise, I think there are other ways to do it that will help drive business for freelancers. I think it's important as well that if you're going to be, um, I'm, I'm like getting confused on the term here because I never say niche. I say niche. It's like <laughs> that whole niche, niche thing. If you're going to be niching down on something, it needs to be something that people are actually looking for. And the trouble with niching down on a language, if you're a technical person, is that if people don't know what language they need or if it doesn't matter then it's hard for them to find you because they're not particularly searching Mm -hmm. for that language they're looking for a developer that can develop a particular type of app but not specifically the language so you need to be careful to make sure that you're not niching yourself out of the market and that you're actually searchable so in my case I'm kind of niching on two things I'm niching on um, google ads and the, the Google Ads and analytics side, because I'm a very analytical Google Ads type person, and also e-commerce businesses. So that way, when I'm marketing myself, I can be sure that I'm appealing to people on both sides. Because there are people that are searching for Google Ads, but also they know that I can work with e-commerce. So, yeah, what's yeah. your thoughts? That makes a lot of sense. I have a friend that he did web he was building like custom web apps for fisheries, I want to say, right? Super niche, right? I mean, that that kind of thing, but they all talk to each other, right? And so they knew that A, he was capable, but B, he was used to talking to people that understood their concerns. In other words, he spoke their language. But the thing that I'm hearing from you, Petra, and Michael is that essentially, yeah, if you if you identify your market by what you do, that may work. But if you identify your market by what they do, right, what they, how they describe themselves, then you can start speaking to them because they will self-identify. They'll raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm a manufacturing person or I'm e-commerce. And, you know, immediately they'll get, okay, 
you know, Petra knows how to talk to me about the things that I care about in e-commerce, right? This guy knows how to talk to me about uh, manufacturing, and I don't have to bring him up to speed on that stuff before we can get the technology built. Yeah, and I think that's so such a good point, Charles, because, you know, even when I look at, for example, Petra, how you message, right, you don't say, oh, I work on e-commerce websites, you say something to the effect, I remember seeing somewhere that you help e-commerce websites sell more or be more efficient or effective. I don't remember what I saw, right? But you're speaking really to the value of what you do and the desired outcome of those people who are looking for services that you offer. And I think that language is just so important. I read a great book by uh, Donald Miller. It's called Story Brand. And if you oh, guys great book, you've heard of it and read it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it really positions the customer as the hero. And that's a change in mindset. Also, we were talking about mindset earlier in the show. And I think to the extent that you can really make that customer the hero and allow your services to accelerate that or amplify that or elevate what they're doing, it really is their language and ultimately helps to create awareness around what you can do and how you can help them. Well, it's interesting too. Um, you know, we talked about different verticals, right? Like e-commerce and manufacturing. My freelance or the, the stuff that I'm doing for entrepreneurship these days is mostly focused around the podcast, right? So, you know, I do some coaching, which I guess could be considered freelance. But back back a few years ago, I wound up... So there were, it was a number of different circumstances. They were looking for somebody who could do Ruby on Rails in Utah. And they were looking for somebody who could build effectively a Twitter clone for them, right? And it was for triathletes. And so uh, the difference between them and Twitter was essentially that, yeah, it was focused on that stuff. They had special mechanisms that allowed you to share your gear, right? So your shoes, your bike, you mm -hmm. know, uh, your wetsuit, that kind of thing. And then the other thing that they were looking for was that, you know, if your coach put in do this workout, right, then you instead of putting in biking 100 miles in, you know, whatever time, you would actually just click the icon for the bike, right? And it would put the bike, you know, so if it was a stationary bike, you'd click the stationary bike, right? And so it would save you the characters because it was just an icon. So it only counted as one. I'm kind of setting this up just to explain that, you know, if you do center around the problem you solve, initially it was Ruby on Rails that got me that job. And it was because this client talked to his brother-in-law who was a developer and the, the brother-in-law said, you need to find somebody who can do Ruby on Rails, who can build something like this Twitter clone. Well, my website happened to have a six-part series on how to build a Twitter clone, right? And so it was Perfect. these videos that got me the, the client, right? And then what happened was by the time I finished with that contract, I had a number of other, because I was doing screencasts and podcasts and I was showing people what I could do there. And so I had then other people who wanted similar solutions built, right? So the examples in my videos and in my podcast were all out of that stuff, right? It was, well, I'm building this Twitter clone thing for this client and here's how I did this, right? Or here's what I learned working on this Twitter clone client thing. And so I wound up building probably three or four other social networks over the next three or four years that were just small, focused on specific communities. One wasn't like an internal social media network for a company's customers. But yeah, so it, it's... I like, you know, Petra's talking about doing the Google ads and analytics. 
And, you know, it is, you, you put that problem set out there so people can find you doing it. And yeah, it makes a major difference. And a lot of people, they also get wound up around, well, I don't want to make a video of how I do this. Trust me, those people are going to look at it and they're going to go, well, this is way over my head, but obviously she knows what she's doing. Right. And so that's where that's where a lot of this comes in. And so if you have that niche, you have that focus. Yes, I can build all kinds of other things with Rails or all kinds of other things with React or Vue or Angular. But the reality is, is that by having that focus, I know how to set up a lot of the basic stuff and I can figure the rest out. And they all trust me because they basically watch me do it on YouTube. Yeah. And I think that strategy of showing people how to do things is really effective. I have a client who's in the um, sales recruitment space. So this is a really bright guy. He's got a large business where he finds sales executives for companies. And for those of, of our listeners who are you know, on the corporate side, they know that sales is a revolving door. That's just the nature of the business. Doesn't matter how mm -hmm. good you are. And companies are always looking for good salespeople. And what he has done, his marketing strategy is being really active on LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, he's helping companies better understand how to hire. So to your point, Charles, they see him as the expert. And oftentimes, he's talking about things where they say either, I can't do that, or yeah, I can do that, but that's a lot of work. Why don't I just reach out to this guy and see if he can help? And that's where he's generating business. Marco, yep. since you're uh, such a specialist in SEO, can we take a step back from this for a minute? And can do you have any thoughts on how someone can find out what kinds of search terms people are using to find them so that they can actually create more content that's related to what people are actually interested in learning about from them? So we're talking about starting from our perspective, but why not start from the perspective of the people searching? Yeah, that's a great question, Petra. Thanks for that question. So from an SEO perspective, I think there are a lot of things that you can do. And it really does start with trying to understand objectively how people would get to you, how they would find you. And there are a lot of factors. I mean, we could spend a couple of hours just talking about SEO today. But I think, you know, in terms of tangible tips that people can use, I would start with something as simple as Googling yourself, seeing what the search results look like, seeing if there are any competitors who might be showing up either paid or organically. Uh, because as you know, Petra, they're probably bidding on your, your name or related names. Um, things like Google suggest, meaning as you start typing, you're going to see suggested terms and phrases. That's going to give you some really good information for a quick free glance. But personally, I like to use keyword research tools. One of the easiest, and uh, there's actually a free version, is called Uber Suggest. It's actually uh, Neil Patel. Yeah, Neil Patel's tool. And, uh, you know, Charles, you're familiar with it. And I think a lot of people are because he uh, was, was kind of interacting with Gary Vee for a while. So he got a name for himself. And then he really invested in some really helpful tools that are SEO focused and much more affordable than the tools that we use at our agency like SEMrush and Hrefs and Moz and, you know, these enterprise level tools, which are great. And they, they play a role in delivering our services. But I mean, if you just want to kind of get a quick grasp 
on how people might find you, the keywords that you really want to focus your content around, your site information around. I would definitely use Uber Suggest. I'd look at uh, Google Suggest as you're typing. I would look at related phrases at the bottom of, a, of an organic search page. And, you know, I, for a long time, and Petra's going to roll her eyes at this, but, you know, for a long time, I was like using the Google AdWords keyword tool because that was the best thing we had before mm-hmm. these organic keyword search tools uh, showed up. So Petra, is that something that you tend to see, you know, even working from an AdWords perspective? I mean, you do a deep dive on keyword research. So I'm sure you're seeing things around both paid and organic. I, I like to use the keyword planner tool a little bit to understand the prices of different keywords. But I agree with you that relying on it, you end up getting stuck in this idea of what people are searching for but the problem is using a tool like that where you're seeing what people are searching for on volume it's not necessarily what someone is searching for to find you because if you think about it we've been talking about niches or niches or whatever we want to call it (laughs) and let's say you're an SEO specialist and you also work with a particular type of industry now someone who's coming and finding you are not necessarily using the really generic terms that you're likely to find in the keyword planner. And you're not necessarily going to go to page 300 in the keyword planner to find those really specific terms. And even if you did, that would be very long tail and you wouldn't even know if they were applicable. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's a, there's a different way that I've been doing it recently. If, if someone's willing to put a little bit of money behind it, there's an, a type of ad that you can run It's fantastic for weeding out how people are finding you. It's called um, a dynamic search ad. And the really interesting thing about this ad is that Google actually crawls your website and looks at what kinds of keywords are on your website. So if you've got a website already, but it does a bit more than that. It thinks about what terms are synonymous with the keywords that that you've got on your own website. So I'm pretty sure because they've essentially crawled most of the internet, they're probably looking at competitors' websites as well and what terms people are using that are very similar. And then what it will do is it will automatically match certain pages on your website to someone's search term. Now, that's really interesting in and itself because it will send people to the specific page on your website that it thinks is relevant. But the part that I find really great is you can actually then access all the search terms that Google Ads thought was most relevant. So you can actually find out the specific things that they're looking for and you can then start to build content that matches that. And I find that really helpful because sometimes you're, you're working in an industry, you just don't know what people care about, but this starts to find that out. And um, I'm, I'm surprised you didn't mention it, Michael, but um, what about the Search Console? Do you use... Search yeah. console a lot for, for this yeah. type of so, thing? So I was going to mention that. So Search Console, I mean, the good thing is, like if you were go, to go into Google Analytics and you were to look at queries, it's probably going to say not provided for like 90% of your traffic. So the way you get around that is with Search Console, Google Search Console, uh, it used to be Google Webmaster Tools. 
And in there, it's you still can, only gives you about 20% off. So yeah, maybe exactly. as much as 50%. I don't know why right. Google hides so much. There's like this big black box of Google. It but feels anyway, that sorry, way. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, no, it feels that way for sure. But I mean, it does give you kind of another layer of content. You know, unfortunately, even as you drill down there, when they do give you the information, uh, what you generally find is a lot of the keyword terms are branded. So company name. But, you know, what I've actually been using, especially for the businesses that are more local, is actually through Google My Business, through the insights, they will give you the top terms people are literally typing in to generate your knowledge panel. So again, not a a complete home run, but it does give you some of that insight that you really can't get anywhere else. So, you know, I think that's, that's true of all of our areas of specialty. There's no one, and I think Charles, you called it the silver bullet. There's no one thing that's going to give us everything that we want, but you can really kind of piece together information from all these different tools. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. So what do you guys think about, you know, as we're kind of diving into the particulars of generating traffic, what kind of tools or what kind of, uh, not tools, but um, new things do you feel are really valuable to businesses? I recently uh, had a conversation about, for example, some of the AI that Google's using now to generate search results. And uh, the guy I was talking to uh, kind of diverted and said, that's that's fine, but did you see what Amazon is doing? I said, well, what is Amazon doing? He said, oh, now with virtual reality, you can kind of see, I guess it's uh, augmented reality to be technically precise as opposed to virtual reality. It allows you to view something in your physical space. So if you're going to buy a TV, you can, on Amazon now, you can kind of see what that TV would look like in your space. So I'm curious, you know, as it comes to podcasting, Google ads, so many things, what are some of those, um, I guess, innovations that you see either coming down the pike or that maybe you're even using today to create value for your clients? No, I can tell that you're a um, podcast interviewer, Michael. You're just like, <laughs> you're interviewing us. It's well, I'm great. curious. I love innovation. I want to know. <laughs> no, it's fantastic. I'm like, wow, this is, this is turned into a real two-way interview here. It's yeah. really interesting. Um, I'm just going to throw this out there. Um, I think I've mentioned on the show a couple of times that I'm working on the podcast playbook, which is essentially how to grow your and monetize your podcast audience. I, I'm going to put out a course on how to start a podcast, but it's not really going to be my focus. And there are a lot of different things that you can do. What I found is that for one, one of the biggest things that I can do is get people on who are going to share my content. It's, it's really interesting, you know, especially in the podcasting space where it's not as SEOable. I keep hearing rumors that they're eventually going to start playing the audio and indexing off the audio. And when I see it, I'll believe it. But yeah, in the meantime, just just getting those people in, right? And, and having those conversations uh, really seems to make a different, you know, make a difference one way or the other. The other thing that's interesting too, and for better or worse, um, if you're a little bit controversial, a lot of times that helps because you get people talking about it 
and uh, getting that in. And, you know, I went through some less than fun, controversial stuff uh, late last year, about 10 months ago. But, you know, at the end of the day, it did it drove a ton of traffic. I mean, our traffic went way up, you know, for, for good or for ill. So, what about, Charles, what about from a technology perspective? I mean, you've been podcasting a long time. Have things changed much either in terms of <laughs> kind of the recording, the hosting? In the last 12 years? Uh, I mean, the basics are the same as far as like RSS feeds and um, Apple. Apple kind of dominates that. I could go on for hours on the stuff that's going on in podcasting. Um, and if you want that stuff, by the time this goes out, I should have a number of episodes up on podcastplaybook.co for all that stuff. Yeah, as far as hosting them, when we started, it was Skype. And that was basically your only real good option, right? Back in 2011 is when, or yeah, 2011 is when we started the panel discussion shows, right? Um, and then I used Skype when I was doing interviews on my own show before that for the, the previous three years. Hosting's mostly the same. There are more options out there and they all offer something a little bit different, which is nice. The pricing really hasn't changed a ton for any of that. The things that have changed are, in some ways, it's easier to start a podcast. For example, Anchor.fm is free and you can start a podcast on there. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> the, the problem I have with Anchor is mostly around the way they manage your uh, subscri- or your submission to uh, the different directories. They submit for you, which means that they own your submission. Mm-hmm. And I haven't heard great things about the process for getting off of them when you want to be off of them. They also have a little bit more aggressive uh, license that they take with your content than some of the others. So that's changed. But yeah, so it it is easier to start, easier to get rolling. A lot more people know what podcasts are. There are a lot more tools out there for podcasters these days. So yeah, so there's a lot there. And so I think it really is a great time to start a podcast. And I think you really can drive traffic with it. I haven't mentioned SEO. And basically, it's because I haven't had a ton of luck with SEO with the podcasts. Some people use their transcripts that way, but I haven't even seen that benefit people a ton. So I think a lot of it really just comes down to how you can put the message in front of new potential listeners and then get them to subscribe. And if you can get, if you can make people or get people to take those two leaps, then you're a lot better off. Petra, how about you from an innovation standpoint when it comes to Google ads, formerly Google AdWords? To me, that was like the biggest change ever. But I mean, you mentioned dynamic search ads. I mean, I'm sure they're doing things, even with Data Studio. I mean, we talked about Data Studio last. I love Data Studio. <laughs> I love data. it. Data. I'm sorry. Yes. Data Studio. Oh, no, no. That's, yes. You say potato. I say potato. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Oh no, I love, yeah, I love Data Studio. That's been a game changer for me. Um, But in terms of, actually, it's funny, with the Google Ads side of things, the way that they've been going, it's more and more AI driven. But then I find as a service provider, I'm battling with Google a bit because they want to make it black box. So they want it to basically be cut out the middle man a bit and have a end user come onto Google ads and set up a smart campaign, which just does everything by AI and Google just makes all the decisions. And that would be fine if it worked. (laughs) And it's not that it doesn't work. It's not that it doesn't work. It's just that you can make it better. And when you're, when you have a competitor 
they want to hire someone to make, or they want to hire a specialist to make theirs better than their competitor. (laughs) If you just have a black box and you have a competitor, your competitor is getting exactly the same treatment that you're getting and there's no real way to get a leg up. So then as a service professional, you're trying to get them a better result and it's really, really hard to do if everything's black box. So um, some of those AI features in Google can actually be pretty annoying. So they'll do things like we were discussing before that dynamic search ad. If you go with a complete smart campaign, which is their complete AI-driven one, they will intentionally hide all the search terms from you so that you can't see what people are actually searching for. And you just have to trust in the almighty Google to tell you what people were searching for. All of those types of things. Oh, it is. Because what happens is Google learns the pattern of traffic and what types of people are the best people and all of that. And you can actually get a really good result with the smart campaigns. I'm not going to lie. You can get a good result, especially if you are in a high traffic type of business. So let's say you're e-commerce, high traffic. They can learn what you like but the thing is if you are wanting to push one thing more than the other let's say you have a particular profit margin that's higher for certain things then the smart campaign you just can't get in there and tweak things you can't really put a competitive advantage in there because it's just basing it on the metrics that you've kind of said are important from the outset but you can't really tweak anything so, yeah, it's really dangerous. So there's there's ways that you can kind of use their AI with a service focus as well, but you kind of have to shut down all those purely AI campaigns. I kind of feel that Google is, they're trying to learn their AI at everyone's expense a little bit because they're obviously developing their own technology. And in order to do that, they need data. So they're making it cheaper or um, you get a kind of a better return if you use some of their AI technologies because, so for example, with their display technologies, it's much lower price per click if you're using the more AI-driven ones. So, um, yeah, you can have kind of, when it comes to display, you see the kind of standard fixed-sized ads where someone's got a banner that fits a certain size slot and you'll see a banner and it. it looks like it's being graphically designed as a banner ad and that fits a particular size. Google have been experimenting with these resizable ones. Now, I use them a lot because they're so much cheaper. They're about 20% of the price compared to the, the other ones. That's so, um, yeah, they're, they're definitely wanting to use the data. Like, and, and the thing is they um, Google will contact you and say, hey, we've noticed that you're busy on Google ads. We want to give you some tips and then they'll try to sell you on whatever their latest technology is. And again, it's always, they're trying to get you to use the things that are providing them with the most data. So you've got to be a little bit careful because I don't know that the technology is there yet to kind of both enable you to get the best result using AI and also to differentiate yourself from your competitors. But there are some interesting things with regards to Google Ads scripting, which I'm not going to go into that at all. It's, you know, it's 
real geeky type topic, but they've opened up a whole <laughs> API. Like yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Um, but they've opened up a whole API for being able to control your ads. And you know, it's so infuriating. Those AI ads that I told you about, you can't even access them from the API. They just have locked them out from the API. So my first turn of kind of using the scripts was met with complete frustration because I had a client who we weren't able to transition them off the fully AI driven one yet but um, you just can't even access it using the scripts so all the scripts that we've written just didn't work drive you absolutely nuts but um, no there's a lot that you can do there you can kind of interact with your own advertising to automate it in a way so there's some interesting things happening there but I don't want to I don't want to control this podcast at all talking about that too much how about yourself Michael yeah I was gonna say that's really interesting because we have a number of local clients uh, in the trades uh, roofers for example uh, siding companies decking companies and we've been using Google guarantee which you know for a certain fee you can generate leads off of Google they kind of give you a badge as like a Google guaranteed provider and it drives leads. It does work, but it's very much as you described, Petra, where you don't really know where they're getting people or what kind of people or when your ad shows, when your ad doesn't show. And you basically have no control. You're throwing out a budget and you're saying to Google, go find people for me and make the phone ring. And they do. I mean, it does work, uh, but could it be better? I'm sure. I'm sure if if someone like you were to look at that data and realize that everything's coming from one zip code, why not put the entire budget around that zip code? But I can guarantee they're not doing that. So maybe over time it'll get better and more efficient, but yeah, I mean, there's just a lot of stuff that kind of happens where you kind of throw it to the wind and hope that your dollar is returned uh, with a multiple. So that can definitely be challenging. So I think that, innovation is good in many ways, but can be difficult too. I've seen a real problem with that as well. So these AI-driven campaigns, if you know anything about AI, you'll understand that the the way that AI works is the algorithm learns itself based on your data. So um, so it's learning, 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 and then it goes, oh, now I can match this, that, and the other. Oh, you know, it works. During that learning phase, it doesn't work as well. Now, with Google Ads, if you accidentally do something to mess up your ad, the one that's already learnt, it comes up saying learning. And I'm like, ooh, this is interesting because um, I called up Google Ads because I had a, a client that had had one of these AI ads that had been working really well, but then something had happened therein, like their website had dropped out and it all went pear-shaped. And so we were changing the budget, changing a few different things to try to get it working again. And it came up saying learning. I called Google Ads. I said, look, um, it's still going to keep the previous learnings, right? And they're like, oh, no, no. When it goes into learning, it just throws everything out and starts over. And I'm like, oh, no. no. <laughs> so years worth of uh, artificial intelligence learning just gone. And when you're relying on their algorithms to do that for you, then you have to treat it with kid gloves because you don't want it to just start again. Now, I mean, this is happening in Google Ads, but I'm sure it's happening in a lot of other things where the technology is kind of new or they've got 
I mean, if you think about how many people are using their technology and they've got to keep all of these learnings somewhere. So just from the perspective of how much infrastructure it takes to keep all those learnings at the, this point in time, they're probably just wanting to get rid of them because oh, here's a chance to clear out our database and start over. So you've got to be a little bit careful not to throw all your eggs in the one basket in case things do go pear-shaped and it doesn't work out. Mm -hmm. Do you recommend running multiple types of campaigns within Google Ads for that reason? So that you know <laughs> I wish saying? I or could. Do you never no, no. Do you know what? When when they put those AI ads on they actually cannibalize any other ads. So if you have AI ads and manual ads running at the same time, Google ads won't give any traffic to the manual ones. They'll only give traffic to the AI ones. So you just can't even see what's going on. You have to turn them off. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's such a pain. King. Oh, it's awful. So what I'll do, if someone has an AI ad running, like the smart one, which is like a lot of people will say to me, look, I just turn on a smart ad. And then I've just let it do its own thing and I've never touched my Google ads, but we want you to make it better. I'm like, well, I can't really make it better if it's just on the smart ad. So um, sure, I can make it better, but I've got to switch it over to manual. But it's the risk is that if you switch it over to manual for too long and then come back to the smart, it might go back to that learning. So what I'll do is every week, I'll switch between the manual and the smart and the manual and the smart and the manual and the smart. And I've got to alternate them so they're never running at the same time. And that way I can get the manual one up to the same performance as the smart one. Wow. But I can't run them at the same time because if I do, then first of all, the smart one will get kind of learnt based on some weird data. But then second of all, it just cannibalizes the non-smart one, the manual one. I'm just impressed because it sounds like you cracked the code. <laughs> <laughs> it, it works fine. It's it's interesting. And, um, I've even written scripts that will do that for me, but I can't, well, no, actually I can't. I, I started writing scripts that will do that for me, but I can't do it with the smart campaign, which, yeah, so no, it doesn't really work. I have to do that manually because the smart campaign, they won't even let you access with a script. That's, yeah. Many, many days of me shouting at Google. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> you don't have to love the companies that you work with. You just have to be able to find a way to solve the problem that your customer has. That's the name Absolutely. of the game. <laughs> yeah, it's funny because back in the day when Google, from an SEO perspective, was easy to manipulate, you know, it's like, they say crawl, walk, run. Well, Google's running now, but there was a time in my history, at least, where they were crawling. And there were actually pieces of software that would do almost everything SEO related for you. They wouldn't necessarily change, let's say, the metadata on your website titles and descriptions and all image tags. But what they could do and would do is a lot of the link building. So they'd, they'd go out to uh, directories and they'd post to directories. They'd go to article directories or posting sites and do it all automatically, including the recapture. I mean, the technology was unbelievable. And then, of course, Google said, wait a second, we're going to basically disavow all of these sites that are just link farms. And when they did that, the whole market changed right? The bottom dropped out of it. And it really shifted to creating quality content, engaging on social media, kind of this omni-channel marketing approach. But the technology, much like Google, 
continued to evolve and evolve and evolve to the point where it wasn't AI at the time, but it was really doing a lot of the functions that we as humans would need to do in order to create effective campaigns. So it's interesting to see what's happening with Google right now. And uh, they're definitely moving in that direction for sure. Well, that sounds like a good point to actually pause and move into picks. But no, yeah. it, it's been a really interesting discussion. Thank you so much, Michael, for being willing to participate in a, a conversation style to and fro. That's been really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, um, it, the, the actual topic moved in a really interesting direction that I wasn't expecting. So, and it's been fantastic. Well, um, before we move into picks, actually, how can the listeners reach out to you? Well, they can definitely check me out on Twitter. I'm at M Fleischner, F-L-E-I-S-C-H-N-E-R. And more than happy to share my email address, mfleischner at gmail.com. And uh, feel free to reach out with any questions, comments, or concerns, as I like to say. <laughs> Hopefully not too many of the concerns exactly. when they're reaching out to you. <laughs> yeah, email those to yourselves. <laughs> if you're a paying customer, then go for the concerns. That's if you're right. just reaching out, <laughs> then... <laughs> One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker. I don't want to deal with Kubernetes. I don't want to deal with setting up servers. I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show, where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. All righty. So, all right, let's move into picks. So, Charles, what's your pick this week? Uh, so I've got a couple of them going on. Um, I think I mentioned before uh, Podcast Growth Summit. That's going to be at podcastgrowthsummit.co. Um, po uh, podcast playbook is pod podcastplaybook.co. Uh, working on getting a podcasting course together, and if you want to get it as I build it, then uh, you can get it for a discount. And uh, all the information's at pod uh, podcast playbook. Beyond that, um, I'm really excited for the new Brandon Sanderson book coming out. It's called Rhythm of War. It is the fourth, I think it's the fourth book in the Stormlight Archive series, and. Uh, Anyway, uh, really been enjoying those books, so I'm going to pick those. I also tend to listen to books as I'm trying to go to sleep. And the books I've been listening to lately are The Wheel of Time books by Robert Jordan, which are, uh, both of them are fantasy series. They're awesome. So really, really enjoying those. And um, yeah, I, I don't know that I have any other picks beyond that. So yeah, go check those out. 
All righty. I'll share mine next. So I've shared this before, but essentially I use some software for creating proposals. It's called quilla.com. I lucked into getting a, a lower price before they increase the price. So sorry, everyone, if it's a little pricier now, but I really love this for proposals. Since I've been using this software for, for proposals, I've been winning a lot of my proposals. Now, I'm sure it's not just my proposal software. I'm sure that I'm getting better at the sales. <laughs> but um, I really like this software because it basically lets you describe what it is that you're offering and then it transitions into a pricing section. The pricing all happens automatically so you can offer things that um, people may or may not want to take up and they can put a tick box in and it will update all the pricing. Then it lets you put terms and conditions in there and it's got an accept button down the bottom, which is basically like an e-sign. So it's got a record of when they clicked accept. And I really like that because I can send through a proposal, they can read through it, they can read the terms and conditions right there and then and accept it. And it's just done and dusted and we move into actually delivering the service and onboarding the client. So since I've been using this software, I've had a strike rate of probably about um, 85, 90% of all of my proposals have been accepted. Wow. I started in March. So pretty much my strike rate has been fantastic. And I've had a lot of people actually say, um, wow, I really like your proposal software. I'm going to use it myself. <laughs> so I've actually had people start working with me and then pick up the proposal software too. So it's it's a good one. I definitely recommend trying it out if you're using just Word documents and PDFs. It's much less cumbersome, just makes the whole thing streamlined. So yeah, that was um, quilla.com and I've got a link in the pics. And how about yourself, Michael? What have you got for pics this week? Well, first of all, I hope you signed up as an affiliate for that site because you should be earning commissions on your sales. That's all I have to say. Um, so for me, I've got a couple of picks. Uh, the first is a shameless plug for the Digital Freelancers podcast. So you guys can go out to podcasts.apple.com and just look for the Digital Freelancers. That's my podcast uh, with a co-host, Mike Hall. And, uh, you know, I would say in terms of picks, I would definitely, we mentioned it during the show, but check out StoryBrand by Donald Miller. I know, Charles, you, you read and enjoyed that book. Uh, I think that's really a game changer where you can help clients rethink how they're positioning their brand, their products, their services. And uh, I've been using it for quite some time. So I think those are my, my two picks and uh, encourage you guys to uh, take a look. Awesome. Do you know that story brand Great. book that's been on my list? I'm not sure if I've actually got it yet or if it's just on my wish list, but it's been sitting on a list anyway for quite some time. So I've got to actually pick that up and read it. it I think it's on my audible list. So it, I'm going to listen to that one, but yeah, Sounds looking great. forward to it. <laughs> All righty. Well, we've come to the end. So now before I head off, I just want to let everyone know that they can subscribe to the show or follow us on Twitter. Please go ahead and do that so that you don't miss another episode. And yeah, it's been great having you, Michael, and great having you as well, Charles. Thank yeah, you it's so good much. to be back. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.